What a finish from Balogun. Oh, Benyatta, beautifully done. Bobby York, surely. There it is. Mbappe now. Wonderful. Got to be. Lovely finish. That's the goal. Tara Mbappe. It's Ellie White. Ellie White. Well, it's been coming. Put in by Jonathan Davies. Kylian Mbappe brings the Parc des Princes to its feet. Hello everyone and welcome to Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English. It's been a big couple of weeks in the French top flight and in this episode we're going to review all the major talking points as well as cast our eye over a mixed bag on the continent last week for the French clubs. We'll also be taking a trip down memory lane with Professor Andreas Evagora to back when PSG weren't yet the European powerhouse they are today, staying in the French capital And Warren Zaire Emery isn't just the talk of the town, he's the talk of the nation after receiving his first call-up to Les Bleus by Didier Deschamps, the national team coach. Angus Turod is going to tell us more about the best thing to come out of 2006. Yes, 2006. Can you believe it? That's when he was born. Luke Entwistle is also with us today to look ahead to next weekend's mouthwatering clash between Paris Saint-Germain and Monaco, a clash that could set the tone for the remainder of the season. We'll also have another Deja Who clue to give you the chance to go into the running to win a Kevin Danzo RC Lens jersey. And all the regular stuff that we offer on Le Beau Jeu. You can get involved in the conversation via Twitter at League One underscore ENG for English. Like, subscribe, follow and recommend this podcast on all your platforms. And of course, for all the news, videos, interviews, and everything to keep right up to date with the French top flight. It's all on Ligue1.com. Well, gentlemen, Angus and Luke, pleasure to have your company. I'm skipping all the intros to try and bring this down under three hours of French football chat uh, each couple of weeks. So let's go straight into it. It may have taken 12 matches of the season, but PSG are finally top of the table. Even if Nice remain the only unbeaten side still in the competition, a Kylian Mbappe hat-trick, PSG undefeated since that one loss of the season to Nice. That's seven without defeat now. They've won their last five in a row, scoring not more, not less than three goals in every single game. Kylian Mbappe's hat-trick, though, uh, Luke Entwistle, wasn't enough to convince Luis Enrique that he was the main man, or rather that he is the main man, and we want him to be even more the main man. Is that is that fair criticism of of, of Killian to say, look, he scores three goals, but the best player in the world should be doing even more? Um, I think it's you know a recognition of of where Mbappe is currently. I think as a player, I mean, he is and has been for many years the finisher of the moves less involved in the build-up. This is who he is and, and it's him at his most efficient. I think the question when Luis Enrique came in was, can Mbappe do more of that? Because obviously that's what he demands from his players. He demands them to be more involved in the build-up. Um, and currently it seems that he's not necessarily fulfilling that role. Is it a little bit harsh to to ask him to do more when he's scoring a hat-trick? He's got, you know, he's on 13 goals, six more than, than Aqua Adams, who's his nearest challenger. So you know, he's being, as the French like to say, decisive. You know, he's scoring the goals, he's winning them the games. But <laughs> at the same time, there is this this perception. I think it's a growing perception in France, and it was mentioned in the media as well, that he is the player that just doesn't get involved in the play enough. And we see him too rarely, you know, in the game, but then he turns up in the right moment, in the right time, and then, you know, pulls out the finish. I mean, that's who he is as a player, but I think that he's being asked to be more rounded. Is this a criticism levelled at Erling Haaland, for example? No, certainly not. But, you know, this is also a question of, you know, would Luis Enrique criticise Erling Haaland for also not being involved in build-up potentially? I think it's about play style, at least in part. And I think it's also to do with the expectation levels because Mbappe um, has been on the scene for a very long time. At this, at this point, he is considered by many as the best player in the world, you know, despite what the Ballon d'Or uh, told us a couple of weeks ago. So I, I think that, you know, there is heightened expectation. Haaland may be on the scene, you know, slightly more recently, and maybe those expectations will grow of him as well. But I think that there is an expectation. I, I don't think it's an unfair expectation. Um, and I think that he could do more in the build-up, make himself more available. Um, but that is something that, that 
at least Luis Enrique hopes will, will come in time. Well, Luis Enrique probably does have, well, some references in the field of what he's talking about as well, having also coached Lionel Messi, um, a player who is incredibly influential in, uh, in, in certainly the attacking aspects of, of sides where he plays. I got the feeling watching the post-match interview that it was a clear message being sent by Luis Enrique to Kylian Mbappe via the media saying, look, great, that's fine, but we need more. Sometimes those messages have to get passed in, in the public domain, if you like, to, to draw a reaction. There's a lot of talk again at the moment, and I think there will be now until Kylian Mbappe you know, either signs a new contract or does leave Paris Saint-Germain as to, to whether that's part of this message as well. But Angus, five wins on the trot for PSG now, apart from the blip in uh, the Champions League, if we can call it that, another, another little stumble in the Champions League against AC Milan. But it looks as though Luis Enrique's message to the entire squad, not his public messages to Kylian Mbappe per se, but the way PSG want to play is starting to gain traction, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, obviously, they've gone now to a very possession-based uh, game. Indeed, only in the sequences they've had, they've lasted so long that only Manchester City, if we go back to what they were doing, have had sequences that have been longer than them before either there's been a shot or a, a result of some kind at the end of that sequence of play. Um, I think with Mbappe, this is not new. I mean, this happened last season as well when uh, he was being uh, also criticised for not getting back. And I remember on the podcast, we even talked about it, and I said, well, yes. Um, as someone who commentates athletics as well, and you've got to look at what Kylian Mbappe brings. And Kylian Mbappe, he brings sprints. He brings speed. And the thing is, is if you are running around everywhere, you stop being a sprinter and you start being an endurance athlete. And that's midfield of territory. So you need him to be the sharp tip of what um, Paris Saint-Germain are doing. And he can't do that if he's exhausting himself by tracking back all the time. So at some point, you've got to have a, a compromise, I think. And Kylian Mbappe gives so much in terms of goals, surely it's down to the rest of the team to make sure that they supply him. And this season, if you look at it, 10 or so players have been assisting him in either Liga or in the Champions League. There's a remarkable spread of assists across the team. And Kylian Mbappe is doing better this season, 13 goals this season at this stage compared to 10 last campaign. So he's really, really thundering on all cylinders. So. It may be, I can understand what Luis Enrique is saying, but I'm not sure it's actually going to do, make Paris Saint-Germain a better team if he does. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Angus. I didn't get the feeling he was talking about his defensive duties so much as, as just getting involved in the play. But it is fair to say, I mean, and, and to bring it back to the Messi thing, Lionel Messi never, never made a tackle in his life either at, at Barcelona under Luis Enrique. So... Enrique does know how to play with this type of player. I think it's. A, I, I wonder why he he went public with it because if we if we continue the Messi comparison, you know, Messi played with in a wide position generally in attack, similar to Killian. You generally had a central striker, whether it was a Luis Suarez or someone. You had a Neymar for a long time at Barcelona on the other flank. We had all three. I think the problem is defensively. You can't have three players that aren't doing anything defensively, but you can generally generally get away with one. I wonder if I want I wonder why he was trying to do that. Do I, either of you have any idea why he why he'd try and publicly ask for more? Sorry, maybe it suggested he's already said it to him in pub, in private and mm. uh, hasn't got through. I mean, we know that Kylian Mbappe has a very strong idea of what his role should be. He didn't like it when he was played out of position last season when you had um Messi and Mbappe, uh, sorry, Messi and uh, Neymar there. So, um it would suggest that perhaps it's that. Um, I think that if you look back a couple of seasons, he came up with a lot of assists. Last mm -hmm. season, he didn't. So maybe Luis Enrique is looking for him to start setting up chances for uh, teammates as well as being set up by all of his teammates. He's certainly a player, I think, that, that can be involved in the build-up right from that, you know, that first ball, a la Messi. You, know, you look for him out of defence. You look for him out of midfield to make things happen. And, and of course, with his pace, it is absolutely frightening. It wasn't only about Kylian Mbappe's hat-trick against Reims. Reims, who have been in excellent form up until this 3-0 this loss, generally give as good as, as they get in, in matches under Will Still. They, they scored a, a memorable victory over Paris Saint-Germain in, in recent times as well. Um, 
But also at the other end, Gijo Donnarumma made a couple of fine saves. He actually got nine out of ten in Le Kip. He was the highest ranking player in the in the weekend action. Another goalkeeper to have done well, Luke, was uh, Kern of Monaco in the last minute against Luav, a Luav side who are also uh, doing probably much better than expected, I think, so far this season. Um, but tell us a little bit about Monaco, Luke, because... They almost conceded that defeat in the last minute. Um, they've lost second place now to Nice. They're, they're only three points behind Paris Saint-Germain. We're going to talk about the big match against PSG coming up. But uh, how are they travelling at the moment? They've been just starting to lose a bit of their edge. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, I think that they've had more of a, an emphasis on the defence in recent weeks because, of course, they were scoring three goals a game plus. For weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, especially prior to that October international break. I think they were averaging at least three goals a game, which was quite an insane level, but they're also shipping goals. I mean, notably conceding three against Nantes. I mean, that's not sustainable. And I think that Hutter has wanted to shore that up. It's needed to be shored up. But in doing so, I think you lose focus on the offensive efforts. It's, it's, I think that's quite a natural, you know, if you shift your focus to being more solid, you're going to lose something going forward. And that's what we're seeing currently. Um, I think that Ben Yedder has yet to find his feet this season. I'm not sure how he's reacting to the new competition with Balogun being there. Um, maybe he's kind of been a bit disturbed by that because he's certainly not looked himself this season, nowhere near as clinical. And um, Balogun's also had a small drop-off in the past couple of weeks. So I, I think that those kind of individual drop-offs, as well as a collective shift in focus, has meant that, okay, Monaco are looking a little bit more solid at the back, you know, despite the fact they did concede that last-minute penalty, but they are losing a little bit going forward. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, an operative word that's been used in Hudson's press conferences is the word kind of balance, and, and that balance is still being found. It was, you know, maybe too attacking, now it's maybe too defensive. So somewhere in the middle, um, you know, they've got two weeks to find it, even though, of course, most of their players are off on international duty, but a huge match coming back on a Friday night as well. So there's going to be maybe not that much time to actually prepare with all your players that you're going to be playing in that match. So. So let's see how they look then. But it, it, it may be a little bit more difficult than we first thought that game for Monaco. Well, Nice drew scoreless with Montpellier this week. So they dropped a couple of points, which is a rarity for them as well. They've been absolutely flying. But I started this review with it may have taken 12 matches, but PSG are top of the table. It may have taken 12 matches, but Olympic Lyonnais have won a game. And it was courtesy of the Irishman, Jake O'Brien. In just his fifth appearance for the club, he got the goal to give Ligon that first win of the season, 1-0 over Wren. But, Angus Tarode, Wren did have a player sent off in the first half of that one. And, Leon, were they as convincing? Have they turned the corner? I mean, Fabio Grosso said that we still have a long way to go. We're still bottom of the table. We haven't, you know, we're not in, in the promised land just yet. Yeah, it certainly changed the game. I mean, when... Uh... One of their two duets was sent off. Um, the, the right back, Benjamin Borjo, had to drop back and fill in for the rest of the game. And that certainly backed them up. I mean, the, the, they were so deep defending Wren after that. I mean, as the away side, Monaco were up to 70% possession at one point uh, during the game. Sorry, Monaco. Leon were up to 70% um, possession at one point during the game. And Leon, watching them during the first half, when they had chance after chance, you were looking at them going, how is this team bottom of the table on four points and enduring their worst run without a win since the 1960s? They're playing well. I mean, Ray and Shirky still looks out of sorts, to be quite honest with you. But Maxence Kakare was brilliant during the game. Uh, and it was not the most beautiful goal you're ever going to see, um, but uh, it was a really important one. Jake O'Brien's first goal since arriving from Crystal Palace, having been in Belgium last season. And they deserved it, to be honest with you. Wren managed to win against Panathinaikos in midweek with 10 men. It was a very different response to having a man sent off in this game. And Wren are now enduring their worst start for about five years. And it's the draws that are killing them. It really is. They've conceded um, points in three games. They've taken the lead in. They've drawn nil-nil in two games. They've got two wins. Only Leon have got fewer wins than them. So their European ambitions. I mean, you're talking about talking about the media with um, Paris Saint-Germain. Bruno Genesio did the same thing 
during the week as well, saying that he's not going to congratulate his team for winning one game. He's got goals and served the club and they need to get on with them, which suggests that there's something of an attitude problem going on at the moment. They're still waiting for Martin Terrier to come back to form after he's come back from his ACL. He looked completely off the pace, to be honest with you, a very different player to the one we saw before his injury in January. And uh, Benjamin Borjo has not been able to get back to the same sort of assist form that we've seen from him in the last couple of seasons. And it all just looks a little bit out of sync. And yet in Europe, they look like they're definitely going to be in the knockout stages after Christmas. Well, Europe is one of the big positives for once. We can, we can fly the flag uh, at the moment, how the, the French club's are doing. In theory, while Lens may have missed a trick um, with their 1-0 defeat at PSV Eindhoven last week, all the French clubs are still in position to go through um, either top or in second place of their groups. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's keep moving through the weekend's action. Luke, to you now for Lens, a little chat on Lens, the Le Soyeur, because they were winless in two in the last week. Lorient, scoreless. Now, that's not a great result given how Lorient are going at the moment. And then they lost that crucial match 1-0 away to PSV Eindhoven as well. But there was another little launch special of this season. That's a last-minute goal to make things happen. Um, it wasn't Florence Sotoka this time. It was Jonathan Grady, another. And I guess when we talk about Lance, we're talking almost exclusively of, as underrated players and unsung heroes. But Jonathan Grady is another one of those. He got the winner. He was let go from the Bordeaux Academy when he was a, when he was a kid. He played in the fourth division. He played in the third division, the second division. Finally signed for Lens in the second division in 2019. Got promoted with them, which means he got an extra two years on his contract. And here he is now scoring the winners against Marseille as they continue to climb back. Yeah, I mean, Grady and, and Sotoka, they did a lovely actually interview in, in French media, both of them together. I think it was with L'Equipe. And it was just nice them kind of, you know, telling their tale of coming from amateur football to the Champions League to nights at the Bola against against teams like Arsenal. Um, and it is a lovely story. And there's, there's so many stories like that in French football. I think that, I mean, if we're moving on to, to Lens, I, I think that it's quite surprising. And I was quite surprised to look at the table and find them in sixth after that awful start. I remember before the first international break, they were rock bottom, no wins, just, you know, everything seemed to start four defeats. Four yeah, defeats exactly. to start the season. And, and yeah. it was very unexpected. I mean, I thought there would be a drop-off, but nowhere near to that extent. And in the first half of the first game against Preston, I remember they were 2-0 up. And you think, ah, you know, they'll be all right. And then suddenly they go on to lose that game 3-2. And you kind of think, what's going on here? Is it just a blip? And it was quite a prolonged blip, but they seem to have, have moved past that. And it's it's been a, an incremental process. It feels as though we talk about lots of draws for, for Rennes, but it feels as though there's also been quite a few draws for Lens. But they're also just nicking games in, in those last minutes. I think that Marseille, not quite time to say they're in trouble, but I was in a press conference with Gattuso when he first arrived and he seemed to have a little bit of a swipe at Marcelino saying that the players weren't fit enough to play 90 minutes. He said mm. they're only fit enough to play my style of football for 60 minutes. And then after that 60-minute mark, they've just got nothing left. And I think we're seeing you know, a few times late in games, lapses of concentration. They could have scored the... The corner before they did score, I think it was Wesley Said, whose shot was blocked off the line by Jordan Vera too. So, you know, there's clearly a lapse in concentration on two occasions. The second one proves fatal. So I think there's reason for, for worry there, maybe, um, for Gattuso and, and just the fitness levels. I mean, we're in November and we're talking about fitness levels. It's not a good place to be in. But Lance, um, I mean, can they do what they did last season and, and challenge PSG? I, I, I don't think they can, but I think that having been way out of the conversation for European football, they're very much back in that conversation. And, you know, this European uh, season has really kick-started them a bit because as we were, we were saying, you know, four four defeats and then he gets that severe match, that draw, and that just kick-starts their season. And they have looked good in Europe since and they've looked better and better in the Egan since as well. So, you know, we talk about French teams just trying to get into Europe and once they're in Europe, just not really caring and just making sure that they're there next year. I think that Lance's approach has been quite fresh and quite nice and that they're really having a go at it. And I think you've seen the rewards of that too. Well, let's talk about French clubs in Europe then. And Angus, I come to you because I, I know your your English allegiances to, to, to football clubs and there was a big week last week. Um, I remember seeing Toulouse get absolutely thumped by Liverpool. I think it was in a Champions League 
playoff match, a third round qualifier or something back when Johan Elmonda was a was a Toulouse player, I think. So that's going back a, a decade or so. But um, they turned that around last week, a, an amazing win, a dramatic 3-2 victory where at various times they looked like they had it. They couldn't back it up on the weekend with a 1-1 draw with Lille, but Lille are a good side who are in good form in the moment. And Toulouse, you know, they're, they're a little bit hot and cold. They're, I think they've only got two wins all season in Ligue 1 at the moment. Um, but that win over Liverpool, how did, how did you see that one, Angus? Well, I mean, away trips are always a bit difficult. Thanks for this, by the way. There may have been a little bit there of uh, Liverpool underestimating uh, Toulouse. I mean, they did win the, the Cup last season, but uh, they're not really regarded as one of the heavy hitters of French football yet. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. They were a Ligue 2 side. So, you know, um, and they, they've had a phenomenal rise, a little bit like uh, Lons have had as well for, mm. out of Ligue 2. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to make much difference in the end. Liverpool's still leading the uh, the table. But uh, what it's done is it's actually played Toulouse in with a real chance now of progressing. I don't think many people thought that they had a chance when they started uh, this group, but um, it's very much now in their own hands. And uh, the thing about them as well is that they're obviously a good cup side. And when you're playing in Europe in these very small group stages, they're kind of a series of cup matches you know, because you don't have an awful lot of room to make mistakes. And they've shown that they can do it. They lost a couple of important players in the, the summer, but they still got the nub of what they had. So they're still going forward. They changed their coach, obviously, but the, the coach that's come in seems to have taken on what was good about them before. And, and they're still a tough side to play. They, they lost a couple of big players. They got one of them back with Spearings, who came back after a couple of yes. weeks. Lance is not for me. Obviously, didn't like the weather or something in the north of France. Went back. He was another player that featured in the team of the week this um, this morning as well for for L'Equipe. So, a big round of action. Let's just have a quick look at where the teams sit in Europe then before we move on for our first feature. So, Paris Saint-Germain coming unstuck again. A second defeat for them uh, in this group stage. They are now a point behind Dortmund a point ahead of AC Milan and two points ahead of Newcastle. So next up, it is Newcastle United who visit the Parc des Princes in their next Champions League match. A victory, revenge for that uh, defeat at St. James's Park and PSG will have eliminated Newcastle. We don't know whether they will themselves be qualified yet um, to go through, but um, a win over Newcastle will certainly see PSG in the box seat to go through from their group in the Champions League. Lens are currently, as we just heard, sitting in third place. Um, They're four points behind Arsenal and level on points with PSV Eindhoven in their group. Elsewhere, Toulouse are well-placed in second place behind Liverpool. Rennes are topping their group ahead of Villarreal. That win over Panathinaikos as well last week holds them in good stead. Marseille, despite their... uh, Domestic tribulations at home in Ligue 1 at the moment um, are top of their group as well, a group with Ajax Athens, Brighton and Ajax Amsterdam. Ajax, who have had a pretty tough start to life this season at home or abroad. They are winless in their Champions League group so far. And Lille may have been uh, held by Sloven Bratislava um, last time out. They're just a point ahead of their opponents there in that group, but they are still top of the group. And what all of this means is that all the French sides are in a position, all six of them, to go through and qualify from their groups, which means the gap is closing to the Netherlands, who currently hold that fifth position in the UEFA coefficient. It's less than a point, producer Stephen tells us, that it's 0.769 points, to be exact, between... The top five and the top six. France is still generally considered to be a top five league club. So clearly it's not only about the UEFA coefficient. It clearly comes down to, you know, who's got Kylian Mbappe playing in their league, I guess, and, and Warren's Zaire Emery as well. But, it, but there are plenty of other elements perhaps that, uh, that mean why you're a top five league. We here on Le Bourgeois like to call Ligue 1 a top five league. Well, it's time for our first feature of this show, and it seems like just about every other week there's a new star coming through the ranks of French football. 
such is the depth of the talent pool. The youth academies across France, they're known across the world. There are more French players playing in Champions League than any other nationality aside from Brazil. The latest one is a Paris Saint-Germain youngster by the name of Warren Zaire Emery. He's a quiet kid coming through the ranks, but on the football pitch, he looks absolutely amazing. Um, everyone's talking about him. We've just heard in the last 24 hours or so that Manchester City had a 60 million euro bid rejected at the start of the season to try and get him on board before he even burst onto the scene, if you like. But uh, we asked Angus Tarode to tell us more about this young man. He's a role model, the words of an academy coach at Paris Saint-Germain. Mbappe or Marquinhos, Danilo or Donnarumma, the sort of accolade you would expect to be used to describe a senior player at any football club. That's not to say that they aren't all that, but the player he was actually describing is a 17-year-old that has barely begun his career, Warren Zaire Emery. Zumana Camera was talking to PSG TV ahead of the club's recent Ligue 1 outing at Hones and Montpellier. In the middle of a sequence of performances which have started the process of turning Zaire Emery from one of star prodigy inside the club into a major European star on the stage outside it. The teenager is promising and perhaps even proving already to be one of the most exciting graduates that the PSG Academy or any other has ever produced in France. That's how PSG football advisor Luis Campos sees the midfielder, that from the very moment he appeared in the team in a friendly in the summer of 2022 at the age of just 16, looked totally at home playing alongside club legend Marco Verratti in a side that included global icons Mbappe, Neymar and Messi. With Neymar and Messi and indeed Verratti now gone, there is perhaps no player in the side now that embodies more the new ethos of PSG's post-Galacticos era than their homegrown prodigy, born and raised in the eastern suburbs of Paris in Montreuil, on the opposite side of the capital to the Parc des Princes. Zaire Emery is by no means a rare gem unearthed at the Combe des Loges in the Saint-Germain-en-Laye, but PSG has become known more often than not for shipping out their young talent only to see other clubs reap the rewards of the Parisian club's hard work and development, and watching their graduates claim success and even win silverware, even on occasion to the direct detriment of the club that nurtured them. Perhaps most famously with Kingsley Common, who so famously came back to haunt his parent club's decision to let him go, by scoring the winning goal in the 2020 European Cup final for Bayern Munich, a dagger which killed off the nearest attempt that PSG have come to finally winning European club football's holy grail in what was their first final in the Champions League. PSG have been able to see the potential of Warren Zai Emery, though, coming for a very long time, the youngster having taken the trip west across the capital to join the club when he was just eight years old, a couple of years after the Qatari-backed QSI group had taken over the club. Zai Emery signed his first professional contract in the summer of 2022 and immediately became PSG's youngest ever league 1 player on the opening weekend of the following season, just 16 years and 151 days old. More than holding his own and earning substantial playing time despite the arrivals of competition to his position in the form of Portuguese Vitinha and Spaniard Fabian Ruiz, it wasn't long before Zai Emery also became PSG's youngest ever goalscorer around five months later, still only 16. The statistics don't always reflect a midfielder's input and influence, but with Verratti having moved on, this season when Zaire Emery scored against Montpellier, it was the seventh goal that he'd been involved in since the start of the season in all competitions, the joint most of any player in the top five European leagues born after the 1st of January 2005. Also, his ninth start in PSG's 11 matches in Ligue 1 so far this season, only keeper Donnarumma, centre-back Shrinya and right-back Hakimi have played more minutes than the prodigious, talented youngster who's effectively still a schoolboy. But Zai Emery is proving to be no boy amongst men. Three of those assists came in the Champions League, the most of any player regardless of age in the group stage this season after PSG's destruction of Milan on match day three. And it was noticeable that in the return leg, it was his midfield partner Vitinha who was taken off at the San Siro, with Luis Enrique leaving Zaire Emery on for the whole 90 minutes. It's not only his coaches that he's impressed with his maturity, a player who's still finding the balance between playing dreams and academic pursuits and responsibilities. Thierry Henry has been so taken with him that he made him his captain of the France under-21 side in September, despite Zaire Emery being the youngest member of the squad. 
Even Didier Deschamps appears open to fast-tracking him even higher to the senior French squad, calling him up for his country's Euro qualifiers against Gibraltar and Greece, this a side that has gone to the last two World Cup finals. A new era was heralded when new manager Christophe Galtier and Luis Campos were brought in to change the club's philosophy and direction in 2022. The former may have only lasted a single season, but the latter is still very much implementing the plan to bring in more homegrown talent. Zay Emery is fast becoming the spindle around which all this is happening. Campos having told a colleague of mine that Zay Emery was the most exciting talent to emerge in France since Kylian Mbappe, then at Monaco. Maybe even more exciting. Yet the pressure of this kind of expectation seems to sit lightly on Zaire Emery's broad shoulders. Coaches and teammates have been overwhelmed by his hunger, focus, composure, maturity, discipline and determination that Zaire Emery shows on a daily basis. So much so that teammates have even found a nickname for the player dubbed the Boy Wonder by former boss Galtier, the Robot, which admitted to Ligue was because he's always looking for work, not just during training, but after it, and before it too. As if to reinforce this appreciation of his attitude, and not just his talent, ex-PSG defender Zumana Cameron, now coach of the under-19s team, and whom we mentioned at the top, said that he's always first to arrive for all aspects of training, whether it be on the pitch, or to team meetings, or even video analysis sessions. Warren Zaya Emery is proving that it is possible for a young Parisian kid to not only break into a team of seasoned superstars, but also to flourish in it and maybe even become a pillar of it himself. Club president Nasser Al-Halifi going so far as to call him unique in an interview with Italian sports daily Gazzetta della Sport ahead of PSG's return leg with Milan at the San Siro. He may not be the tip of the spear at PSG, that's Mbappe's job, but there's certainly a case to argue that Warren Zai Emery is the shaft driving the sharp edge forward. PSG fans inside the Parc des Princes see one of their own, and are no doubt dreaming that this local lad becomes a first-team mainstay for many years to come, as the club look for a change of direction that maybe, just maybe, will lead them to finally reach the pinnacle of European achievement. Well, what a prospect. He does look physical, good head on his shoulders, knows how to score a goal, never looks, as Angus just told us, out of depth, playing you know, alongside some of the best players in the world. And sometimes you just forget he is just 17 years of age. France are playing Gibraltar and Greece in their Euro qualifiers. But, of course, as we all know, they are already qualified with six wins out of six. The Netherlands can't catch them, so France will be in Germany next year. The big question, Luke Entwistle, is will Warren Zaire Emery be there too? I mean, as, as Angus alluded to there in his piece, you know, he makes an incredible impression on absolutely everyone that he plays under. And I think that's quite an important thing to, to note. I mean, looking at Thierry Henry's comments about him saying, you know, the sky's the limit. I've never met, um, you know, a player so mature at that age. Then going through Christophe Galtier, who gave him his breakthrough last season. Uh, and then now to Luis Enrique, who says, you know, we all see what's happening here. You know, this is kind of a generational talent kind of thing. I think that the impression that he gives um, to every single one of his managers, I think is really important. Deschamps has yet to work with him, but he will do so this week. And if he can make as big an impression, you know, with Deschamps as he has with every other single manager coming through youth level and then breaking through into the professional setup, I think that if he makes anything like the same impression, I think that he's got a very good chance of making that Euro 2024 squad. I think that there is a place for him, for sure. I think that there are a couple of players in the midfield that you're looking at and saying that I think that Warren Zaire Emery um, is a bit of a risk to their to their you know, spot in, in this squad. Um, we asked Yusuf Fafana about it in the press conference last week. Um, and I think that he is one of those that is maybe looking over his shoulder a little bit at this new generational talent coming in and thinking, is he going to take my place? I mean, it's already too many whose who's injury affords Zaire Emery the, the place this time around. And Deschamps wasn't very committal as to whether that injury played a part in, in Zaire Emery getting his first call up. But I think it probably did help. But I think that what we're seeing with Zaire Emery is that once he's got his foot in the door, quite ironic because I think it's a, a broken toe for, for too many, I think that once he gets his kind of foot in the door I think that he makes such an impression that he becomes almost undroppable and that's the impression that we get from him so I think that he's got a very good chance of being there at Euro 2024. Didier Deschamps was clearly just feeling a little bit jealous all these coaches getting to work with with 
Warren Zaire Emery, and, and so he had to have his chance as well. You're listening to Angus Tarot, Luke Entwistle, and myself, Robbie Thompson, and Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English. It's time for our next feature. Well, it's time for our Ligue 1 Legends segment with Professor Andreas Evergora. He's covered just about every club who's won the league title in the 21st century, except one, and that's the one that's won it the most, Paris Saint-Germain. So let's take a trip back to May 2013 when, under the driving force of the likes of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Javier Pastore, a young, very young teenager, Marco Verratti and Thiago Silva, the Capital Club's dominant reign began. So let's hear from Andreas Evagora. Saturday, the 18th of May, 2013, Parc de Pince. It's eight minutes from the end of PSG's last home match of the title-winning season. The fourth official punches the number 32 into his substitutes board and 45,000 fans rise to their feet. This isn't any ordinary substitution. The player coming off is global football icon David Beckham, Trudging off the pitch, he's congratulated by teammates and opponents. The crowd chart his name. When sub Ezekiel Lavezzi ruffles Beckham's hair on the touchline, the Englishman breaks down into tears before falling into the arms of coach Carlo Ancelotti. Beckham's arrival in Paris symbolised the new star-studded Paris Saint-Germain, the first French team to outspend the giants of Europe. That day, Ligue 1 had unprecedented attention from the world's media, the match against Brest may have been the end for Beckham, but for PSG, the title of 2013 was just the beginning. Formed in 1970, PSG's story had been symbolised by league glory in 1986 and 1994, but instability and drama both on and off the pitch. World stars came and went, Ronaldinho, Rai, David Ginola and George Weah among the players to have pulled on the famed red and blue shirt. But a sense of unfulfilled potential lingered at France's capital's only big club. Ownership was unstable and tensions on the terraces raised questions about the club's future. In European terms, PSG was becoming an also-ran. Problems came to a head in 2008. PSG's current global fan base can be forgiven for not knowing the name of Amara Diane, but the Ivorians saved the club from calamity and possibly collapse. That's because on the last day of the season, PSG travelled to Sochaux, facing the unthinkable relegation from Ligue 1. But DNA scored twice, including a streaky late goal that's gone down in club folklore. PSG were saved, just, but fans were fearful for the future. Tuesday the 31st of May 2011, a day that would change French football forever. Newsrooms across the country were stunned. A short statement from investment company Colony Capital, PSG's American owners, announced the sale of the club. The buyers were an arm of the Qatari state, Qatar Sports Investments. Despite just landing the 2022 World Cup, the Gulf nation was little known and the club was suddenly under the control of President Nasser El Halifi, then unheard of in football circles. The sale price amounted to peanuts in modern terms, 40 million euros, but would transform PSG and Ligue 1. QSI's first season saw PSG pipped by surprise package Montpellier, but there would be no doubts about 2012-13. PSG demanded a first title in 19 years and embarked upon a spending spree that eclipsed anything in the history of French football. PSG splashed out around €40 million Euros each on stars Javier Pastore and Thiago Silva. A young Marco Verratti also arrived from Italian football. Wednesday, the 18th of July, 2012, Paris. PSG's big spending would suddenly be overshadowed by the arrival of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a signing that would completely change the image of the club. The Swedish colossus was the first global star of the new PSG era, the second highest earner in football, and a player PSG used to build a global brand. After signing for the club in a boisterous news conference, Zlatan took an impromptu publicity stunt around Paris, creating chaos at the Eiffel Tower and Champs-Élysées. As they were whisked away by police, PSG officials joked that apart from cyclists on the Tour de France, they were the only people in the country allowed to drive on the wrong side of the road. This is the most beautiful mess I've ever dreamed of, sporting director Leonardo told PSG's marketing supremo. This is exactly what we need. A decade on, Ibrahimovic's legacy remains. 
The verb to Zlatan means to dominate through sheer force. It's become part of the French lexicon. And Ibrahimovic has his own waxwork at the famed Musée Grévin, France's answer to London's Madame Tussauds. The dark days of that precarious 2008 trip to Sochaux were history. Paris, as the club now like to be known, was becoming a luxury brand, using the name of the French capital as its focal point. Then there was the football, and what a season it was for Carlo Ancelotti's team. PSG were dominant, Zlatan became the first player since Jean-Pierre Papin 23 years earlier to score 30 Ligue 1 goals. His two strikes at Marseille, the stuff of legend, one nonchalant backheel from a corner, one blistering free kick. Beckham arrived with fanfare in January, and PSG finished 12 points clear of Marseille, sealing a first title in 19 years with a win at Lyon, a match symbolic of the changing order of Ligue 1. Of PSG's nine league titles since the QSI takeover, many old-school PSG fans regard 2013 with most affection, not just because of the stars like Ibrahimovic, Pastore, Silva and Maxwell. Frenchman Blaise Matuidi and Jeremy Menez became crowd favourites, while homegrown players Clément Chantom and Mamadou Sacco made big contributions. Then there was club legend Sylvain Armand. Back in 2008 and overcome with emotion, the defender felt his knees on the social pitch as PSG saved its first division skin. Five years later, he was on the subs bench congratulating Beckham after that memorable match at the park. The 2013 season was the start of PSG's league and domination. The stars kept coming. Edinson Cavani was a record signing in 2013 before the landmark arrivals of Neymar, Kylian Mbappe and Lionel Messi. While the Champions League has remained elusive, the global brand was built. Since 2013, revenues have doubled to 800 million euros. The club that was bought for 40 million euros is now estimated to be worth 100 times that figure, 4 billion. PSG is today one of the most talked about clubs in the world. The 2012-13 season started and finished in unforgettable style and French football would never quite be the same again. Thank you, Andreas, for that. You can follow all the action, get involved in the conversation on Twitter at Ligue 1 underscore ENG, or I guess we should call it X nowadays, even though that still does sound weird. All the news, interviews, videos, everything you need, including links to this podcast on league1.com. And once you find the podcast, make sure you subscribe, like it, give us a rating, and tell your friends to have a listen. Because... One of the best things about Le Bourgeois is your chance to win a Ligue 1 jersey every month. So now it's time for your second chance for this month to get your hands on a Kevin Danso RC Lens jersey. That's right. Deja Who is now. And for our uh, new listeners, this is the nigh impossible quiz to try and uh, find <laughs> which player I'm thinking about. I'm getting some nods from the from the panelists because we'll ask them if they have any idea and 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 I agree that it's not always easy I do generally try and find and it's actually hard to write the clues I will say because you find a player and you think okay this is a player people will know the player but then you don't want to give too much away and sometimes I think the clues are so completely unspecific and and unhelpful that I, I marvel that some people do find them but we do always have a winner at the end of every month so uh Get your thinking caps on and get ready for this one. So here we go. This to go into the running for a, a Danzo Lance jersey at the end of the month. We'll be announcing that in the next episode in two weeks' time. Who am I? In a professional career that spanned 19 years and is finished then, I started out at one of the two first division clubs from my region before a big move saw me win two national championships and the UEFA Champions League, a trophy I would win again with a club in a different country. I played top flight football for five teams in my homeland and three other clubs in three different countries, including a spell in France, where it looked as though my career might have slowly been losing its way as I fell out with a future national team coach and spent two seasons on loan at three clubs around Europe. In the end, I played just 14 times in 12 months in Ligue 1, 
managing to score three goals all the same. However, a move back to my homeland proved fruitful. I played on for another nine seasons, winning two cups and taking my tally with the national team to 57 caps. Playing in a World Cup, playing in Euros, even if I did miss out on the crowning achievement of my generation. So there you go. For new listeners, I suggest you try and find the country first, perhaps, of where this player could be from. Um, Then try and think why I ended up on loan in France, what was going wrong. Um, And there, see how you go. That is to go into the running for that Danzo jersey from Lens, a Lens side who are playing Champions League football and are a little bit the talk of the town. At the moment, we've been saying that for a couple of seasons now in France. They're proving it in the Champions League. If you have it or you simply think you might have it, send all your answers to league1podcast at gmail.com and you can go into the running for that Kevin Danzo jersey. Gentlemen, I'm not even going to ask you if you think you have a, a, a clue about who that could be unless you want to give us some red herrings that, that you think a player that's won the Champions League with a couple of clubs, put a few people off their, off their game, a season on loan in France. All right, we'll yeah, leave like, it at like, that. Uh, just, just, just like that. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's clearly a name of someone that's been at the top it's of the game. clearly a name, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think we can agree on that, definitely, yeah. <laughs> you threw me off there because I made the assumption to start with that he, he played for five seasons in France and then suddenly he went and then no. moved to France. I went, oh, crikey, okay, that's yeah. not right then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I've got an inkling, but, um, but I'm, I'm not 100% by any okay. means. Very good. Well, don't give anything away then. We only accept red herrings live on the show. All right. That's it for Deja Who. Time to move on. Round 13 has a pretty spectacular matchup in store for us. AS Monaco are currently lying in third place. They travel to take on Paris Saint-Germain, but there's a lot more to it than simply a top-of-the-table clash. One of just two clubs to have taken a league 1 title off PSG since that 2013 triumph Andreas told us about earlier. Monaco have never backed down from a fight in the capital. Under new boss Adi Hütter, they are looking to attack more than ever. And it's Luke Entwistle that has a look ahead to a, to a big match and perhaps where this one can be won and lost. No team has played against PSG more than Monaco. The pair have faced off 111 times in official matches, with the Prince Party Club winning 48 of those. PSG have just won 33. Le Monégasque clearly constitute a bogey team for PSG, who haven't won this fixture since the 12th of December 2021. Mauricio Pochettino and Niko Kovac from the dugout on that day, and both clubs have had two different managers since, with Le Monégasque having won two of their last three against PSG. Whilst Monaco have had the better of PSG in recent years, it is the latter that have gone on to win the title in the last two seasons. However, there is more on the line this time around. There can be few doubts that Monaco, like their opponents in the upcoming game week, are actors in what could be an exciting and tight battle for the Ligue 1 Uber Eats title. Monaco trailed PSG by one point, but that could all change at the Parc des Princes. It is a former Monégasque, who is part of that title-winning side in 2017, that will provide the lion's share of the threat for Luis Enrique's side. Kylian Mbappe is Ligue 1's top scorer, despite missing the first game of the Ligue 1 Uber Eats season after being ostracised by his own club. The France captain has had no issue in the past celebrating against his former club. He's arguably the greatest player to have come through the club's prestigious La Diagonale Academy, but there is certainly a degree of acrimony between Mbappe and the Monégas faithful. Charged with keeping Mbappe quiet is Wilfred Singer, the Ivorian defender who arrived at the Prince Party Club in the summer from Torino as a relatively unknown quantity, has very quickly established himself as a key player under Adi Hutter. When I asked Monaco Sporting Director Thiago Scuro about Singer's instant adaptation to Ligue 1, he didn't get carried away, but was nonetheless pleased by those early performances in Rouge et Blanc. Since we saw Singo, we saw his skills and the mentality to compete at a very high level. It's good that he's adapting step by step to the playing ideas, he said in early September. Singo has built on that early promise to become the standout performer in Monaco's back line. 
Trained initially as a wing back, he is blessed with incredible pace and he is not afraid to use it, often driving forward and breaking through the thirds. That electric pace is equally as useful in helping him recover defensively. Mbappe is used to beating most players in a sprint race, but this won't necessarily be the case at the Parc des Princes. With Singo likely to feature at right centre-back, this battle promises to be at least one of the key, if not the key, battle in winning this match. Monaco and PSG are also very evenly matched midfield. Mohamed Kamara put in a memorable and highly combative performance at the Parc des Princes last season, testing the referee's resolve not to brandish the cards. The Malian international is no longer a guaranteed starter at Monaco, however, and that is since the arrival of Denis Zakaria in the summer. However, whoever starts will add physicality and aggression in the middle of the park, and it will be much needed. PSG dispose of a variety of options to counter Le Monégasque. Warren Zariami continues his meteoric rise, earning his first call-up to the France national team, whilst players such as Kangin Lee, Bettinho, Manuel Ogate, Fabien Ruiz, Carlos Soler, afford Luis Enrique plenty of diverse options in the middle of the park. Monaco's task will be disrupting these smooth operators who are crucial to PSG's metronomic possession-based playing philosophy. Up front, Monaco certainly have the quality to challenge PSG. Whilst it was Takumi Minamino who started the season in electric form, it is Alexander Golovin who is still in the headlines in recent weeks. Since last season, he has freed himself of the injuries that have so far played his time at the club, and as Adi Hutter admitted, the Russian international is in top form and is one of the top players in the league. Many teams have tried and failed to stifle his influence on games in recent weeks. With Monaco uncompromising in their style, which can be oversimplified as an attacking barrage on the opponent's goal, this Monaco PSG, like those that preceded it, promises to be highly entertaining. PSG will attempt to exert more control on the game than they have managed in recent seasons, and will be hyper aware of the threat that Lynn Monegasque will pose in transition in particular. Being aware of the threats and being able to counter them, however, are two very different things, and this game feels too close to call. Okay, thank you for that, Luke Entwistle. Angus, it's strange in in the modern game to have these sort of bogey teams still, but Monaco really are a bogey team traditionally for PSG, and some of PSG's big moments have been defeats and or have been spoiled parties spoiled by by AS Monaco that's not to say it's going to happen this week because we know PSG are in good form at the moment Luis Enrique's got them starting to to hum how do you think this one could play out well Adi Hudo has already also had um, Monaco uh, humming as well at least until the last couple of weeks um he he, he's, he's won titles in his homeland in the past. He uh, was in charge of, uh, of Eintracht Frankfurt, Borussia Mönchengladbach, where, to be fair, he didn't really click in the end. Uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, he did well. He then uh, left to go to Borussia Mönchengladbach. But now that he's arrived in Monaco, Monaco are an interesting team because a little bit like uh, Paris Saint-Germain, they've been a team that has brought in some fairly high-profile players. They just don't have the backing of the fans, if you like. Only 5,000 or so really turn up or even less than that but they're still a rich club and so they see themselves as a rich club against the rich club that Paris Saint-Germain are and they've had really good players in the past that have been able to step up and challenge Paris Saint-Germain I they don't forget they nearly won the title uh, a couple of uh, years ago it only lost it on the final day even if it was a an outside bet so they always come to the party um this season they were really good they were leading the table until a couple of weeks ago say they then lost the lead to Nice. Paris Saint-Germain, let's not forget, did lead the table during match days when they won, only to lose it again when Monaco won week and then Nice then the following week took back the lead. So they are a, certainly a team that I think can, can, really, can really do the business. We've seen as well, Wissam Ben Yedda has been able to rival um, um, Kylian Mbappe in the past with terms of goals. And if he can suddenly switch on again, to that kind of form, which he's consistently done over the past few years, then they could well be a threat once more. Their midfield is solid and uh, they have a good goalkeeper. They keep on bringing in good goalkeepers in recent years, which has uh, really helped them out a lot, actually. And I think it could be a very entertaining game because I think that Monaco, they have this habit of raising their game when it's against the capital side. Luke, you didn't give us a tip in, uh, in, your, in your preview. We know you're a Monaco man. At heart, are you expecting a, a trip up to the capital, a triumphant return 
at three o'clock in the morning to the ultras at <laughs> at the airport, Nice the airport, airport, or well, you know whatever airport it, it might be. It would be Nice airport. <laughs> um, not necessarily. I think that the that optimism is slightly you know dissipated after that kind of nil nil draw against Lavre. I, I think that they still have a very good chance because. As, as I said in, in the piece, they kind of they do turn up against PSG, and I think that the way that PSG play or have historically played in, in the past few years has suited how Monaco want to play. They very much play into their hands, but I think that with the goals drying up, I think that Monaco could struggle. Um, I don't think it's going to be the most high-scoring affair. Maybe a two-one PSG, I think, would be my prediction based on current form. I would go the other way, actually. I think that actually. Playing against Paris Saint-Germain after the disappointment of that Le Havre game is the ideal opponent for them to go up against because they have literally just got to completely turn around what happened because if they do that again against Paris Saint-Germain, then it will be yeah. a high-scoring game. So, uh, But just not in the right way that you're yeah. hoping. No, for sure. Well, well let's, not forget, let's not forget that these games, I mean, it's played on Friday night after an international break. These games are notoriously difficult for the big clubs with lots of players away on international duty. Um, It depends how the players return and in what shape they're in as well for this one. And also the fact that Paris Saint-Germain have a very big Champions League clash coming up just a few days later, where it's fair to say their Champions League future could be on the line as well. Just interesting, you've made me think, earlier today when I was going through the the Deja Who clues and thinking who I could uh, come up with, I came up, I found an Austrian coach, because of Kevin Danzo, of course, and now you're mentioning Adi Hutter, an Austrian coach, um, very famous name in football, um, but I didn't go with it. He spent a season and a half at the Racing Club Paris in 1954 to 1956, <laughs> <laughs> having, having won the league, having won the Austrian league several times before and after his spell. He only played for two clubs, Rapid Vienna and Racing Club, um, and Ernst Happel. And, of course, the Vienna Stadium is named after Ernst Happel. He took four clubs to Champions League finals, won it, I think, with Club Rouge, with Feyenoord, took the Netherlands to a, a World Cup final in 1978 as well. But I just didn't have enough to go on um, with, his, with his 18 months in France. There was Racing Club finished sixth and fourth. But this is just to give you an idea into into where you should be searching. <laughs> they're, the, they're the lengths I will go to to confuse our listeners um, about Deja Who. All right, well, time to look ahead to the rest of the round's action then. Paris Saint-Germain versus Monaco, as we've heard, gets round 13 underway on the Friday night. Clermont have made it back-to-back wins. They take a lot on a long side who will also maybe have one eye on Champions League football as well. Strasbourg against Marseille, huge match there for two sides that, that are just, you know, not firing on all cylinders at the moment. Nice to lose, another enthralling encounter. Lorient, Metz, Montpellier, Brest, Nantes, Le Havre, and then a couple of big ones to round out the weekend. Rennes versus Reims. Now, Rennes, Another with their eye on European football. They're looking good there. Perhaps they could concentrate a little bit on Ligue 1 as well because Reims are no pushovers. And then Olympic Lyonnais against Lille. Now, that was always a huge match in the early noughties between the dominant Lyon and, uh, and a Lille side where, well, to be fair, a fair few of those Lyon players came from as well before, before winning championships with Lyon. But that looks to be a good one as well. Just a quick look at the ladder before I ask Angus and Luke what they are expecting from round 13 in two weeks' time. Just when you were, were chatting about the, the, the top three and how Monaco have been travelling in the last couple of weeks, Angus, PSG, Nice and Monaco, they're four points clear of fourth-placed Lille. We already have a trio at the top that have been exchanging the lead over recent weeks. I wonder if that's going to go the whole way. After that, Lille. Reims, then another four points back. And this is where it gets really tight because they're from sixth place Lens, who are, on the, who are climbing the table, until 16th placed Lorient, who are struggling at the moment without a win in a long time. There's just five points 
separating 6th to 16th. Even Lyon, who are on seven points, are only six points behind 10th-placed Marseille. So for all the talk of relegation-threatened Olympic Lyonnais, which I think they most certainly are, um, it's still very tight once you head down outside of those European places. So, Angus, you first. Yeah. What takes your fancy coming up in week 13 of the season? Well, without a shadow of a doubt, it's Leon against Lille for me. I mean, the reason why they're talking about relegation is because all of the teams, well, the last six teams that have had a few points after this stage of the season have all been relegated. So it's not like they're just conjuring it out of their own head. But I said during my commentary, I said it is hard to believe that Leon are a serious relegation candidate. It's one of those teams where, you know, the, the classic they're too good to go down comes to mind. But with Leon, they are too good to go down, surely. I mean, when you look at the talent they have at their disposal, how on earth have they managed to get this so wrong? And you can't help thinking that it must have something to do with the changeover of leadership at the top, uh, all the way the, the new owner. It's obviously not gone well. It's created instability in the club. The way that Jean-Michel Olas was basically chucked out has probably not gone down well with the entire city. So I think that um, Leon, though, having discovered a little bit of their mojo, they only won 1-0. It was a scrappy goal, but it was a good performance. So it's something definitely for them to build on. They celebrated with the fans as if they'd won the title. So it was... Uh, it was, it, was, it was a really morale-boosting win for them. And they're up against the Lille side, who are looking a lot better than they were last season, even though they didn't struggle like uh, Leon did. Um, and I think that's going to be a fascinating one. The Group Armour Stadium is going to be happy, I think, for once, uh, because they are, they're, they're welcoming them back after their first win in 11 games, if you go back to last season. So I think that could be a, a very, very good game indeed now. Yeah, that, that, it's, a, it's a good point. The, the Leon fans have been in a little bit of trouble recently as well. We know they had a tumultuous trip to Marseille. Incidentally, that match has been rescheduled to be played at the Stade Velodrome with Marseille supporters heading along there. No problem, no restrictions there to be played on Wednesday the 6th of December. And there's another match, of course, because Brest versus Strasbourg was postponed this weekend as well. So that match will be played on Thursday, the 7th of December, because uh, the poor old Stade Francis Leblay um, just didn't resist against all the storms and winds and rains that have been buffeting Brittany and basically all northern France and into Italy now as well. Angus? I think you could argue that actually the uh, the ferocity of the uh, the local fans, because they make a lot of noise and they jump up and down a lot when they're watching. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a two-pronged attack on that old stadium. It is a fantastic old stadium as well. I think I've said it before on this on this podcast, but I went there, oh, it must be six or seven years ago now for a Coupe de France match against Paris Saint-Germain, and all the fittings were 1970s style. So when you walk up into the, the main stand, you see the sign for the toilet, and it's not, you know, the, the archetypal man-woman figure they had a woman wearing a mini skirt and big boots pointing to the ladies' toilet that way, and a, the man was wearing flares and a, like a wide collared shirt pointing to the gents off, off in the other direction. It is a, it's one of those time warp places where you can go, that, um, which is so nice these days. Made you feel right at home, did it? <laughs> well, I was born in the 70s, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't consider that my... My, I'm very much an 80s, 80s guy, unfortunately. <laughs> I won't ask um, comments on that. I know, Angus, you're one of my own generation, so that's okay. Well, yeah, we'll as let... Luke was born in the same year as Warren Zaire Emery, I get the feeling. Oh, it's crazy. I was thinking about that as well. Not quite, but, but <laughs> 2006. That's when Italy won the World yeah. Cup. It was like just the other day. Yeah, I mean, he, it's really crazy. He, he, even to I think. remember that. That's the first World Cup that I fully remember. So that year kind of sticks out in a footballing sense, as well as a bit of a, a reference point. And for me to to kind of think that a player that is is playing prof professional football for PSG and, and for France was born in that year is a little bit. And in which Fabio Grosso yeah. um, played, and Gattuso. Uh, winning the title with Italy as well. So, uh, so congratulations to him for getting his first win as yeah. well, because it's been a tumultuous start to his time at Lyon. That's for sure. This is the same Fabio Grosso that 
dived for the penalty against Australia in the second round, which cost us the World <laughs> Cup because, of course, we were heading we were heading all the way in that one. But having said that, um, yeah, I like Fabio Grosso. I thought he was a great player and his, at his time. I mean, I won't even go back further, but it was at Inter after a spell with Palermo, I think, where he really started to show the type of player he could be. Anyway, he also spent a spell at Olympic Lyonnais as a player before now coaching mm. them. Well, you have been listening to Angus Tarod, Luke Entwistle, and myself, Robbie Thompson. Don't forget, on X slash Twitter, at Ligue 1 underscore ENG, find us on all your podcast platforms, like, subscribe, recommend, Ligue1.com for all your Ligue 1 needs. We will be back, Le Beaujeu, the official Ligue 1 podcast in English in two weeks' time to look back at round 13, preview rounds 14 and 15. Professor Andreas Evagora will be back. I think there's one more league title that uh, he can look ahead to, and that might well be Monaco in 2017. We'll see what he comes up with there. We'll be announcing who wins the Kevin Danzo RC Lance jersey as well, and we'll have a new question for a new jersey up for grabs as well. Until then, from all the Le Bourgeois team, Enjoy your French football, Allez les Bleus, and we'll see you again in two weeks' time. Bye-bye. Mbappe now! Wonderful! Colombi! Lovely finish! That's the goal!